Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Monday, November 21st, and this is episode 789 of the Survival Podcast. It's also a Monday, and this is usually where we go and we do, you know, news and views and opinions and commentary and some stuff on the economy and all the other stuff that's going on in the world. Stuff that you send me to my email address, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And anything you want to get to me, folks, I'll remind you again, that email address is my real email. It's the one I use every day. It's the one I use for everything that I do. It's the ones that my best friends in the world have. And it's the best way to get a hold of me. It's much better than a Facebook message or a forum private message or something like that. Uh, email is something I'm into often throughout the day and will try to answer as many of my inquiries as I possibly can. I can't do them all due to volume. But anyway, the reason I bring that up is we're not going to do that today. And the reason we're not going to do that today is this is Thanksgiving week. And uh, I have a, a short week planned for you this week. We have today's show. We have tomorrow's show, which will be Keith Snow on Cooking for Thanksgiving. And then on Wednesday, we'll do our Thanksgiving special, the real story of Thanksgiving, where it really came from. It's kind of an annual tradition here, and we'll do that this week. And then I will not be back till I may have a show for you Monday of next week, but it's probably going to be Tuesday. Uh, we'll see. I've got one already recorded uh, that while I'm away, I can probably slap together and get up on the air for you, and I'll probably put that up on Monday. It's a great one on a combination of things, including making soap at home and homeschooling and stuff with some listeners uh, that came up and visited the house. So I need to get that show up for you. So that'll probably be Monday next week. But uh, Thursday and Friday and through the weekend, uh, we're pretty much shutting down here. And I think this is a good time of year for everybody to shut down a little bit on concern and focus just a little bit more on fun and enjoying each other and enjoying family. So today, we're just going to do kind of like a shoot from the hip episode, and I'm going to talk to you about the progress so far on my homestead, where we're at with it, uh, and what we're going to, what we're going to end up doing next, and kind of our plans going into the winter, and, and where we've, you know, how far we've come in, in about six months, and, uh, not even six months, I guess about five months since we made the full-time move, and, uh, where we're going from here, and some projects and plans and things that I've learned. So this should be kind of a fun, laid-back, relaxed episode, uh, and it's a good week to be relaxing and laid back, because remember, it's great to get family together, but sometimes that brings stress along with it, uh, Here's my piece of advice for you to have a happy, enjoyable Thanksgiving. Politics slash religion at the Thanksgiving dinner table do not exist. And if you're, you know, eco-hippie, granola-chewing, ultra-liberal, Obama-loving cousin, uncle, brother, whatever, starts to talk about it, just go, oh, that's nice, and talk about other stuff. All right, and don't bring up any skeletons, and you'll have a stress-free, happy Thanksgiving. Even if you're baited, don't go there. All right, uh, before we get into the main topic of today's show, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Emergency Essentials at BePrepared.com. Uh, let me tell you, it, when it comes to long-term storage food, massive selection, uh, always in stock, great pricing, 
Uh, emergency essentials is your best bet. Now, long-term storage food, that stuff goes out of stock. It's getting very, very popular, so occasionally something's not in stock. But uh, they probably have the largest stock uh, of just about anybody out there, and that's really where they specialize is in long-term storage food. They have a lot of other great stuff. They have an awesome catalog that makes good winter reading in front of the fireplace for planning more stuff in your preps. So get by BePrepared.com. Check out their knowledge base. Check out their food calculator. And get signed up for their catalog. You'll enjoy paging through it. I promise you, I do. Next up today, Western Botanicals. You know, um, I have a, a really healthy lifestyle now. I really feel that I do. And I don't medicate myself with anything. I, I, I barely use any even like over-the-counter medications. And it's been that way for about a decade. Um, and when I do need something to relax with, Or when I need something to uh, treat an injury or pain, I turn to herbals. And I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think there's a lot, there's a time and place for modern medicine. But for your everyday needs, I think modern medicine causes more problems than it solves. So when it comes to herbals, though, I don't always know what I need. Or I can't always get what I want in my backyard. I grow a lot of stuff, but sometimes what I really need is not there. Or maybe I need one component to put a few other things together. I always know that I can find two things at westernbotanicals.com. Whatever it is I'm looking for, and the knowledge of what I need when I don't know what I'm looking for, if I pick the phone up and call Dr. Christensen and his staff. And that's why I think you should use Western Botanicals. You can get herbs anywhere, but you can only get service, and you can only get knowledge that you can trust from a very few places. And I'm sure there's some other ones, but I absolutely know that I'll get that from Western Botanicals, and I know I can recommend them to you because you'll get the same thing. And I'll also remind you that for members of the MSB, they have a program that's $50 a year. It's called Preferred Membership. You get 25% off everything they sell. And if you are a member of the Support Brigade, you get that for free. So it pays for your first year of membership all by itself. That means that they really support the show and the work that we do. Uh, so check out Western Botanicals if you get a chance today. Next up, remember, you can connect to me, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And uh, we are now featured on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network, available at PrepperPodcast.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, or Prior Service. Email me with a little bit of detail about your service. Uh, not a whole resume, just you know what your job was, when you served, where you served. And I will send you a special discount code uh, to thank you for your national service. And that discount code will apply to recurring rates of your membership and use, be used for any membership term you want to sign up with. And thank you for your service, all of you who have served and continue to serve. And thank you to the families of those who are currently serving overseas, something we should mention at this time of year. All right. So uh, when I got up this morning, I was greeted by rain. In fact, I was greeted about 3 a.m. by rain, and I'll tell you how I got greeted at 3 a.m. by rain. We have a skylight in our bathroom, and uh, when it rains hard and fast enough, it almost sounds like a snare drum going off in there, and that that was how hard it rained that it woke me up at 3, and I thought, wow, uh, and I'll tell you one of the projects I've been working on this week and, and, and you know what it was going to do. So I, I went outside, and man, the places that I have not gotten to yet with contouring my land and all, I could just see the soil eroding. And, and it makes me very happy that I'm doing the right things with, you know, setting up my land so that won't happen anymore. Because I'm telling you, with the slope that I have in even my front yard, when I go look at the areas that are not forested, uh, the places I'll be doing all of my growing and, 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 you know, my little mini food forests and all my zone one, zone two area out in the front, anywhere that it's, that it's not really heavily vegetated, you could just see ripples and lines where the water eroded it. 
What was cool, though, is, and we have a video with the editor right now, should be out very, very soon. And uh, I know he's got them both edited. He just needs to upload them. I just emailed him of some of this project. But I've started my second phase of Hugo Culture, which is a totally different project than the one that we're also keeping you updated on with the six flatbeds. And what I did is I went, my wife wants to do tulips and daffodils and all kinds of bulbs somewhere where we can just look out the window and see them, have like a really ornamental area. And that'll be the first swale Hugo Culture bed. So what I did is I built an A-frame level, and if you've never built an A-frame level, um, my video that's coming out will, will tell you basically what to do, but it's so simplistic. Um, what I've always thought is your A-frame level had to have perfect angles and be mitered so that it fit together perfectly and everything. And then what I learned from Jeff Lawton uh, was that an A-frame level can be wonky as long as it's solid. right? And wonky is his word, so it doesn't have to be straight and true squared. So all I did was take two pieces of one by three, cut them to about six foot long, and nailed them together at the top, and nailed them with one nail at first so I could kind of move it back and forth. I took a piece of 2 by 4 figured out where I wanted I, I did measure from the bottom up so that it was the same distance up from you know the bottom on both sides, figured out where I wanted nailed that together, put a couple more nails in it to hold it solid and true. Then I went out and I got a piece of 2 by 6 that was laying around, and I put it on the ground, and I put a spirit level on it, and I shimmed it. On both sides until that spirit level was dead level. So now I got a dead level surface. So I take my A-frame and I put it on, on there and I mark a little mark. And then I spin the A-frame around and I mark another little mark. Oh, I left the part out. You take a string, hang it from the center down with a heavy weight on it. That way it can be anything. I used a piece of an old sink. So uh, you hang that down there and you mark your two little marks. And then right in between those marks, that's where you draw your big mark. And that's calibrated level. And I took that A-frame And I went up on the ridge where we wanted it, and I said to my wife, it doesn't work like we've always done it before. You can't just say, I want it to run this way, because that's downhill, and the whole damn thing will erode. We're going to put this bed on contour. So we figured out where we wanted to start. And we took a stake, and I drove a stake in the ground. And then I put the edge of the A-frame level, and I just worked it until I found where it was level, and I put another stake in the ground. And then I flipped the A-frame level around, and I did it again and again and again. And I ended up with a swale line that was about, I would say, 25 feet long or so. And that's where we started building our pile of wood. And all we did was go into the woods around our property and just start picking up anything dead. And I had some areas where I'm clearing stuff out. So I've got dead wood and fresh cut wood. I've got a mixture of hickory and oak and pine and all different kinds of wood. No concerns over that, right? And I just built, and I have pictures of this for you guys in a video of this, and I just put a big pile of wood about a foot and a half high and about two feet wide at the base on that contour line. Then I stepped back and looked at it and went, you know, that kind of lines up with my pond that I haven't put a liner in yet. But I've got a pond that will hold about 4,000 gallons of water. Uh, and it wasn't holding water. It had a little bit of water in the bottom, but uh, I was going to buy a liner for it. It's probably still going to have to do that, but you'll hear the interesting part in a minute. So yesterday and the day before, I worked my ass off with my matlock and my shovel and my trenching trowel, and I dug a ditch that I feel so embarrassed to say it took me like two days to dig this ditch. But I dug a swale ditch, so I took the A-frame level, and I found the spot where I would want the swale to, to fill into the pond. And I started on that side, and I ran a line back behind the uh, swale, or the, uh, the pile of wood. And then I just dug a ditch, just about six inches, eight inches deep, and about a foot wide, and I threw all the dirt out of that ditch on top of my organic matter hoogle swale. Right? So now I've got a true swale and a hoogle swale going together. And what will happen next is we'll take a big load of compost, and we'll, we'll completely cover this pile with compost and more organic matter and things like that. 
Well, I started this story with the rain, right? So I have this huge hole that Sean Hipskin came out and dug for me that I've been kind of procrastinating on buying my pond liner for to like figure out the way all of this architecture is going to work because I want an overflow point into the pond and I want an overflow point out of the pond. I want to basically have the swales fill this little pond and have the pond backfill the swales so that it'll overflow the swales instead of overflowing the dam. And I wasn't quite sure I was going to do that yet. Well, now I am. Well, I go out there today and this one little swale And it did rain a lot, and it rained a lot before, and that pond filled up maybe with a foot of water, and it's probably three and a half feet deep, so it was holding maybe a foot of water before, and it had all drained back out since the last rain. That one swale, that one little 25-foot swale that soaked most of the water into the land and into the hoogle swale in front of it, filled the pond. The pond is full to the top right now, and it's holding water. Now, it's holding water not because something magical happened and made the pond able to hold water. It's holding water. It's not really. It's seeping through the soil. It's just the soil is so saturated, the seeping is very, very slow. So my hope is it doesn't actually over go over the dam uh, with more rain. Uh, I'm hoping that doesn't happen and start causing me some erosion before I get done with the project. But um, this is what the whole thing taught me. This stuff's easy. This stuff's easy. I've talked about it in theory. I've helped other people design it. But I finally got to a point here now where I was able to take these two techniques that I've done independently and put them together, and it's surprisingly easy. Building an A-frame level, it's a five-minute project once you know how to calibrate. I mean, Jeff said one leg could be all sideways and the other leg could be straighter. It doesn't matter. As long as you calibrate it, you'll get a level line. And once you have that level line, the only thing that was hard about this whole project that I worked on this weekend was digging the ditch because it's full of rocks and roots. And uh, so Saturday I, I did without a matlock and then because we didn't have one. I had a kind of a regular pick, but a matlock is a much better tool for this. A matlock looks like a pickaxe, except the axe side is turned horizontal, so it's like a, like a digging spade. So I went down Sunday morning to uh, Lowe's and picked up a matlock, which is something I should have had anyway, and uh, it had helped a lot, but it was still, I mean, I'll tell you the other thing. If you are digging swell ditches in areas where there are significant amounts of tree roots, the most invaluable thing you can have next to a matlock and a shovel, because you can't dig the ditch without the two of those together, at least you, you can't dig it without the shovel, and the matlock makes it easier, is a, uh, a sawzall. I have my DeWalt sawzall, and whenever I would find a root that was bigger than the shovel could easily cut in half, I didn't even beat. You beat on a big root with a matlock, and it's like beating a sponge. You know, It, it gives a lot. Uh, you just take the sawzall out, zip, zip, and that root comes out, and you just take the root and throw it right up on your organic matter swale. So that's going really well. And now that I've done one, and I shot a second contour line just to see where it was, and I don't know if that's where I'll do my next project as far as my next swale. Um, now that I've done one, I can see how every part of my land can be set up this way. And I've sat there and I've looked at it for months thinking, this is a really difficult landscape to work with. This, the way this is a lot of slope and there's a lot of rock and the orientation's not really very good and all this other stuff. And I put one swale into the landscape. And then in my mind, once I saw one contour line and another contour line, in my mind I could see almost where all the other contour lines are. I still have to shoot them. I can't do it by eye, but I could see it. And I could see the whole project, and I could see from the erosion that was there today if those were in place already. And this will take me all winter to do this. I'm doing this all by hand. Man, I would kill for one of those little bitty tracos right now. You know, the ones with a bucket that's if you, you know, about a foot wide. 
I mean, that would just be perfect for this project. And I would hire somebody to do it, but the problem with that is I have to, I'd have to have everything ready. You know, I, and maybe that's what I do. I, I don't know. I mean, this was, this was brutal work, but hey, I'm still cutting down the, the waistline guys. So, you know, it's good for me to do this work. And I had a lot of pride that I went out there and, you know, manhandled in this and did it and proved it could be done. And my wife was talking about how hard we have to work to do this stuff. And what I pointed out to her is, yeah, you have to work hard, but once you put the system in place, the system does all the work. The system of swales will move the water around. And the thing with a swale, folks, for those who haven't heard me talk about them before, a swale is a ditch on contour. It's dead level. So like this morning, I went out there, and actually the part that overflows into the pond, it worked, but it had to like fill the swale so much up it forced it because I did, I, I did, when I was cleaning the ditch out, I didn't fully clean out that last part of it. Um, but when I went out there, and I was walking my dog this morning and looking at all this, it started pouring rain. So the big, courageous German shepherd ran to the front door and cowered from the rain, of course. That's what he does. So I think anybody could probably get eaten at my house unless maybe you brought a spray bottle uh, because the dog's terrified of freaking water. Um, so anyway, he runs to the house, and I stand there in the pouring rain and my, with my cup of coffee, and I'm watching my swell, and I know my wife's looking out the window thinking, what is he doing standing out there in the rain with a big, goofy grin? Well, what I was watching happen, almost immediately, because the ground was already so wet, I was watching the swale just fill back up. Just fill up, and then it stopped raining, and the water just sat there, and the level just very, you could just, it's so saturated, it's not going in that much right now. But you could watch it just slowly begin to seep back into the land. And the water didn't move up or down the ditch at all. It worked exactly the way that it's supposed to. And it's weird. The first time you see a swale that you dug do that, you're like, it worked. And you've done it before, and it worked before, so of course. But it's still like, I did it right. And I think that there's so much we can do with that simple, basic technology if we'll get off the concept that everybody needs a lawn. And everything should be a lawn. And I was explaining to my wife is when we put these multiple swales in, yeah, there'll be these big piles of, of these big mounds, but those mounds will just be planted with everything we can get our hands on. We're going to finally bite the bullet and, and buy a uh, chipper shredder, uh, which is something we should have done a long time ago. And we have all this organic matter to make our own mulch with. We'll mulch the heck out of them. We'll plant ornamentals and edibles and herbs and everything in there. And then the spaces in between them, right, the flat area, they're not really flat, it's the, the slopes in between them, that area will hydrate as well. The swales will hydrate the whole land. And in there we can just go in and build that soil up and we can plant things that are like clovers and, and, and pasture, uh, pasture style things in between the mounts. And we'll have that whole thing green and holding, holding water instead of shedding water and shedding its topsoil. And it's like she's like the person that has trouble with visualization. But now that we've done one, she sees it too, how it can really be. She sees it in the early spring when tulips first come up because she loves those. We just bought a hundred bulbs. We'll probably go buy a couple hundred more now that we have a place to put them. You know, and she's thinking maybe we could put different data. She said, well, maybe they don't last very long. So maybe we could find different bulbs that all bloom at different times and put them in there. And then that way the tulips will bloom and then daffodils will bloom and then whatever else. And I'll just find the blooming periods and I'll, I'll put them all in there. And I said, do you know what you just did? And she said, what? I said, you just described stacking in time. Right, Because that's the same concept that permaculture uses with succession. Whether it's going from, from weeds to a forest or just going through a, a succession harvest period, it's all about understanding time relationships and putting things together in the same space 
that, only, that one would require, but since they actually do their thing at different times, they can occupy that space densely, and they each take what they need as they need it. And she was like, wow, so that's permaculture. I'm like, uh-huh, yeah, that's permaculture. So this has really got me excited. I don't know if you could tell. I've gone on for 20 minutes about a ditch. But when you do that, then you start to realize, oh, this land can do so much more than I thought it could. Um, I'll throw out a little plug for Jeff Lawton right now. I just got his Urban Permaculture DVD unbelievable with some people forced into a small backyard. So that's a DVD you may want to consider getting. I'll warn you, just like I always do when I talk about his DVDs, uh, I don't know what their problem is. I really don't. I, I don't get it. Uh, but I have ordered every DVD Lawton's put out, Harvesting Water the Permaculture Way, Introduction to Permaculture Design, this new one. I also have another one coming because they screwed up and didn't include my, both of my DVDs and they're taking care of that for me um, with the other, the one on building soil. And they're all supposed to be PAL region free DVDs. So it's being they're supposed to play in any DVD player. They play fine on my computer. I cannot get them to play on my DVD players at home. I've had one of his discs work for me. Now the big collection I keep talking about with Bill and him doing a whole PDC, those play fine on my DVD player. These individual ones, um, they, so I'm just warning you if you buy it, be prepared to watch it on your computer or hook a computer, you know, take your laptop and hook it, you know, your, your, your monitor cable up to your TV and you could play it that way. That's how I got it on the, the regular TV because it's so beautiful that you want to see it in a bigger screen. Anyway, just, you know, public service warning uh, about the compatibility issue with these discs that are being made in Australia. And uh, Paul Wheaton, by the way, has introduced me to Jeff, and I'm going to try to get him on the Survival Podcast, and not on air, but off air. I'll talk to him about that and see if there's something they can do with their encoding. Anyway, beautiful DVD, definitely something you want to take a look at. But it got me thinking a lot more about what I can do. So here's some of the other things that happened. Uh, Steve from Steve's Greenhouse has sent me a greenhouse kit. And we put it together this weekend. I hired a contractor to help me with that because I was digging this ditch and I got all this other stuff going on. And I don't think the contractor did it quite right. And he actually, the way he did the footings, he basically put footings in and then put the greenhouse uh, bows into those footers. And that basically rose the greenhouse a foot higher than it's supposed to be. Um, which I ended up going inside of it and going, I love it. I know it's not technically right, but it's dead solid, and it looks awesome. Uh, and I have to go in and do some things and put some wood around the bottom and backfill some dirt because the area we pushed out, nothing is level on my property. So this was no exception. So starting from the you know the lowest point that the, the guy could when he put the frame in, uh, the one side has you know about a six-inch gap. So I'm going to put a two-by-six in there and, and backfill some dirt and do some stuff and get it ready to go. Um, but the height is awesome. And Steve has a great product. We'll have some stuff coming out with that. The, the guy that did the work for me also, when he trimmed the top, I don't like the way he did that. So before I do a lot of video with it, I want to have it looking the way that it's eventually. Maybe I'll just do some stuff with it anyway and show you what the guy did wrong. And I'll show you how we fix it. Because uh, he's coming back and he's going to fix it. He doesn't know that yet, but we're going to have a phone conversation. Hey, but what got me excited, what has me excited about the greenhouse is now I have a 10 by 20 foot hoop style greenhouse. And even though it was really kind of cloudy yesterday and all, once I walked into it in the full light, uh, it was amazing. Even though it's tucked up on the hill and it's got trees around it, it was so bright in there. And I was looking at these huge steel bows that Steve uses for this, this, this greenhouse kit and thinking, wow. I mean, the stuff I can do with the vertical space. So I'm very excited about the greenhouse. And I'm starting to, you know, just to realize 
what it's going to mean that I can start my own seeds and do a good job of it with all of this land. All And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have all these swales. Well, what am I going to plant there? Well, the answer is whatever I want and whatever I can grow. So I'm really excited about the greenhouse. Those of you that were disappointed that I was thinking about not doing aquaponics in the greenhouse and just doing, using the greenhouse as a greenhouse, using my pond for fish, uh, i got good news for you. I'm really leaning back towards setting up an aquaponic system kind of at the back end of the greenhouse, a small system, maybe 300 gallons of water and six grow beds or something like that. And I've kind of looked at the allocation of space, and I think I can do that without taking up the whole greenhouse as an aquaponic system. And I think it'll be absolutely awesome to be able to produce more of our own protein from the aquaponic system. If we get it in pond as well, great. You know, and if I have the pond and I end up with uh, fish you know, making new fish, I have a place to put the new fish to grow them out. So the whole system should work really, really, really well together. Uh, I think the aquaponics system might be a springtime project. My concern with aquaponics, I'll tell you exactly what it is. I have to hire someone to look after my system when I travel. And as you might know, I have a lot of travel planned for next year and more being added to it. So it's another system that requires looking after when I am not there. And I could automate fish feeding and automate some other things, but I, I just don't know if it's if it really makes sense. And if I do it, maybe it just makes sense to do a small system first to prove it out and learn from it and use the greenhouse space for other really cool things. Another plan I have, though, for the greenhouse is kind of like a hydroponic light uh, concept. Larry Hall, who you guys are very, very familiar with if you've been listening to the show for a while, came up with a self-watering garden built with mostly five-gallon buckets, the little wick baskets that you use for aquaponics, which is just like a little flower pot about three inches around at the top with slits in it. And you take a two and seven-eighths-inch hole saw and you drill a hole in the bottom of a bucket and you stick that in there and then you fill it with soil. And then you build a trench out of wood with a uh, piece of rain gutter in there. And you fill the rain gutter with water and you set your bucket in there and it's self-watering. And then you set up like a reservoir, like a you know 50-gallon drum or a 100-gallon drum uh, with elevation over the, the, the level of your, 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 um, your rain gutters. And you put a float valve in them and every time they, the plants take up some of the water, the system just self-waters. And, all, and if you set it up with rain catchment, it pretty much looks fast for itself, period. Well, what I'm thinking is I now have this 20-foot-long wall on the back, uh, on, on each side. And the, the west wall is probably the best place to do this because it'll be a bigger structure and block more light, and I get more east sun than west sun. And basically build a two-tiered system. So you have one really low and one a little higher toward the back wall. and have So that's, uh, that's, that's 40 feet because it's two rows. You give up one bucket for the float valve, so the float valve. So that means that you can do 19 per row. So that's 38 self-watering containers that would just sit on that one wall and actually take up only two feet of the 10 feet across and give me room in the front for even a, 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 another uh, layer that could be used as a uh, bench for starting plants. And I still have the entire other side of the system to work with. Or maybe I bring it short and I put my aquaponic system in the back. Who knows what I'm going to do. But, but definitely the self-watering system is going in there. Uh, and I think that's just an awesome thing to do. And what will happen because of that, there will be so much transpiration. And with the greenhouse holding the moisture in, uh, a lot of the other plants that are not in a self-watering system will be in one kind of vicariously. If you've ever run a greenhouse, you know that as it warms in the morning, like just tons of condensation form on the inside of your greenhouse. Well, if you just walk in there and shake it, better stand on the outside and shake it, it kind of like rains in your greenhouse. And you can do a lot of your irrigation without even going in there with anything to water. 
So anyway, really stoked about the greenhouse. And the greenhouse and the hugel swells are the two big things uh, that have been going on lately. Some of my long-term planning that I continue to evaluate is what am I going to do for more protein uh, and producing more of my own protein. One of the things that I've realized I probably just need to do is do a hell of a lot more purchasing of protein from local suppliers and build those relationships and build that community. I've got some folks that run a, a farm called JB Farms that I think listen to the show now, and those guys are great. I haven't talked to them for a while. I haven't been down to the farmer's market in the past couple months, honestly, with so many things going on and so much travel in my life. Um, but, you know, they do pastured pork, and I probably need to reserve a hog from them. And uh, my point is that, again, we have to start thinking about self-sufficiency and what that really means. And if you can produce enough for yourself to reduce your expenses on one side, and then you can take that savings and you can put it back into your own community, you're starting to be sustainable at a community level, completely sustainable, versus being partially sustainable at an individual level. So you, you do your partial thing individually, and then you use your surplus to help your community be sustained by engaging in commerce with local people. So that's one thing. Um, but on some other stuff, I'm definitely going to do a rabbit tree next year. That's that's absolutely going to happen. Um, I don't think my wife is real keen on killing the cute little bunnies, but I told her I'll take care of that, and I'll cook it, and you'll never see it until it's on your plate, and then you can just eat it. And, uh, you know, I think that anybody who uh, would eat a good piece of chicken would eat uh, an equally good piece of rabbit and generally not know much, much different uh, unless you told them. And, and now that I'm getting control of the water on the property, I'm starting, it was, again, I, I can't overemphasize this, one swale in one location. And then all of a sudden I start seeing the way the water flows everywhere. And I start thinking about all of this four wooded acres that I have behind me. And I start thinking, you know what? I could play with that water all the way down the hill. I would be, bring machinery in, a piece of heavy equipment in to do this, but I could cut swale after swale after swale all the way down, all the way down the property. And I could start this catchment up high and bring it down low, and that opens the opportunity to put in lots of little ponds. I was, I've always wanted, you know, like the big, giant super pond. And what I realized is I could put in tons of small ponds, And when I say small ponds, I'm talking, you know, 10 foot or smaller in diameter all over the place, all over the property, and have them all fill and backfill and just collect water all the way down. And you're not going to grow a lot of fish in something like that. But you know what you can do? You can go out and you can, you can, you can bring in American bullfrogs. And now I've got another protein source that I don't have to worry about. And I've got predator help uh, out there. So that's one thing you could do. But you could also bring ducks into that system. Uh, there's no reason in the world that you can't let those ducks go in there and manure those little ponds. Um, especially when you're controlling a nutrient flow down, they're basically creating liquid fertilizer all the way down. And if you run those systems right and you run the right type of vegetation in those systems, they stay remarkably clean. Uh, and when I mean clean, I don't mean like go down there and drink out of it. I mean clean from a standpoint of you don't have big, huge algal blooms and disgusting, scummy water and what have you, uh, So, which is a, a real risk with small water if you don't run the right plants in them. So with bulrushes and cattail and stuff like that, you can handle a lot of that issue. And this is something else that I, I think that most people with small pond systems don't realize. If you'll create a system in your pond where it, before the water runs into your pond, it goes through a, a wetland, a marsh, a reed bed. So like where my swale's coming out going into my big pond, I have this kind of level area, and I'll go in there and I'll build that out till it's maybe you know two feet in diameter, and then I'll line that with vegetation and I'll plant you know aquatic plants there so that the water that flows into the pond 
goes through that process first. And then when it comes back out the other side, before it collects into another location, you repeat that process. And what happens is that water gets a lot of nutrient taken out of it by those quick-growing reeds. Well, then you got this reed system that grows like wildfire. They grow huge. Well, what do you do with it? Well, you cut it down, you mulch it. So now you're producing your own mulch. You're cleaning your water and producing your own mulch. And we can put we can put other things in there. Uh, highly productive plants uh, like water chestnut can go into those systems as well. Uh, so now we're producing something edible. We can put uh, duckweed into that system, azola. Right, which is a floating fern. You, if you want to keep your pond from going, you know, into like a green algal state, put, put duckweed in it. The whole top will be green, but it'll be green. You can just reach in and take out, and that stuff doubles its size almost every day. So what do you do with it? Well, you feed it to tilapias. Uh, you use it for mulch. You use it for compost, and you grow, you're growing your own. And what'll happen is that mat will keep a lot of your light from getting down into the water. And then you don't have the green scummy water because you don't have the light penetration. And you can go out there and harvest it as you need it. So I'm starting to see my whole property take that shape. And again, I, I know I've said this before where you probably, I don't want to hear this again, Jack. It all started with one little swale ditch. And it opened up the design in my mind. I want to talk about like where we put the ditch. The, the first ditch should generally go at a high point in your land. And you should work down from there. We actually started at kind of like it's it's higher than the house, but it's for the the next you know six months of project building these little swales out all over zone one. Um, it's 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 really one of the lower points. We did that because we have a, an erosion situation where the banks basically eroding off, so this stops that. So that was one reason we did it. We also did it because I'm a smart man, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. A smart man knows how to get his wife on board with his crazy projects. So remember what Dorothy wants to plant in this swale? Uh, daffodils and tulips and all that pretty stuff that make her happy? Well, guess what? The best place for that stuff, so she can look out the window and see it, would be the lowest swale on this piece of, on this piece of our property. So, being a smart man and knowing that she would be more excited about tulips than blueberries... I started out with the lower swell, and I'm going to work instead of down. I'm going to work my way back up. So that's why I did it that way. Anyway, um, some other stuff that we got planned. I've pretty much decided I am going to fence in a, a fairly large chunk of the property, somewhere on the order of uh, half an acre to three-quarters of an acre. And I'm going to do the stuff that's out front, uh, what you would see from the road and what you see when you walk out your front door every day. Uh, with chain link and probably do the uh, black coated, uh, you know, the nylon coated chain link. Uh, it's going to cost more than doing, you know, some other some other things we could do, but it'll look good and it'll last damn near forever. But my thought is, once I get out of that highly visual area for the fence, there's no reason to spend money on on a chain link fence all the way around the backside of where this perimeter will be. So on the back perimeter, somewhere just as you go past the house on both sides, we'll switch over to T post fencing. We'll do four foot T post fencing. Uh, all the way around, and that's going to let the dogs run. That's going to keep somebody else's dog off my property who keeps damaging some of my things, except when we let him in and he's supervised. But there's a security aspect here. Um, my dogs are really big on defending the house, barking when there's an intruder around, and not letting people sneak around unwanted. But there's something that happens to dogs in general, and I've seen it in my dogs heavily. When you give them a fenced perimeter... Uh, they begin to travel that fence perimeter, 
and they begin to determine that that's their territory. They become territorial over it, not to the point of being dangerous or ruthless or whatever, but to the point of this is ours. And they see it as almost a mandate by their humans that I, this is mine, I keep this. So not only will it let me just open the door and let the dogs out at night and not worry about them running away, or not worrying about something happening to them, it'll let me, when we're not there, leave the dogs outside to defend the property. And you know, a big old German shepherd inside a fence, it tells you you probably don't want to go inside that fence. And we're also looking at you know, what is our next dog going to be because, um, I don't know, we feel like Blackie, our, our lab mix, is on borrowed time. He's not supposed to still be here, according to the doctor, and that just shows you even when it comes to vets, doctors don't always know. Um, supposedly, he has bladder cancer. And the, the, the doctor looked at some cells from his bladder and said they're malignant and there's no cure for bladder cancer. There's no treatment for bladder cancer, uh, especially with a dog. It just doesn't make sense. And a dog that's 15 years old, it really doesn't make sense. Um, but he's doing really good. We walked him up our hill, a real steep grade. He went uh, half a mile just last week twice. And uh, the doctor said it would be a miracle if he was here for Thanksgiving. He doesn't even seem to be sick anymore. Uh, so I don't know if he just had a really bad bladder infection And maybe he has prostate cancer, and um, maybe the malignant cells that he got from the bladder were passed through from the prostate. I don't know, because uh, prostate cancer, most men, and definitely most dogs, uh, in older ages that just, just have got it now, you're better off doing nothing, because you'll outlive your cancer. Now, you have to talk to your doctor about your individual situations, but I'm going to tell you the truth, that most men in their 90s have prostate cancer, and there ain't no point There ain't no point in treating it uh, if, it's a, if it's a moderate uh, prostate cancer because the, the, the time it'll take to kill you, you'll be dead from life before it, it, it really has any impact on you. Young person with it or certain aggressive forms of it, yeah, you got to treat it. Anyway, so the whole point is that one way or another, Blackie is probably going to be gone within the next year. I mean, if he lives another year, it'll be a miracle even if he doesn't have this cancer. So we're starting to think about our next dog, and I've always wanted a feist. Uh, which would kind of look like a Jack Russell on steroids, and they're a, a good squirrel dog. But I'm leaning more and more now toward a cur, uh, like a blackmouth cur or something like that. If you want to know what a cur is, Old Yeller was a cur. And, uh, you know, you no good cur dog or whatever. A cur is a courageous dog uh, with some of the attributes of more aggressive animals, uh, like a pit bull or uh, like, a, 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 you know, an Argentinian Mastiff, a Dogo Argentino, or uh, they have that, that heart. They're the kind of dog they will they'll fight a boar or a bear to the death before they'll back off of it. But they tend to be very, very good with, with people. Uh, they're not good with strange people. They don't want strange people around. And they'll use that same courageous attitude uh, to ward off a stranger that they will to, to fight a bear or a, a, you know, or a boar. Um, they're also really great uh, hunting dogs. They have great noses. Uh, they're good for hunting anything from raccoon to squirrel to rabbit, you name it. They make good hunting dogs, good all around. You know, they're not your, your pointing bird dog or anything like that, but a good, uh, a good hunter. So we're thinking about maybe that's, maybe that's our next dog is a cur. And uh, anybody out there that uh, works with them, if you have any opinions on that, let me know. Uh, I've never owned one before. Uh, but from every all the research I've done as to who is the next homestead dog, it seems to make an awful lot of sense uh, to fit our situation. We have a mountain covered in squirrels. Uh, we have rabbits. Uh, we have millions of acres of forest around here, and I can hunt squirrel 
just about all year round. There's very, very few times in Arkansas where squirrel season is actually closed. Not a lot of hunters. So that's a great thing for me to do with a dog uh, instead of just by myself like I do now. Uh, Max is not a squirrel dog. He, he just chases them. And, uh, but I'll tell you what I just learned about Max. He's not gun shy. Uh, I had one of his toys. This is a great little sidebar story here. So I had one of his toys and we're outside playing and I threw it for him and it got stuck way up in a tree. So I ran in and I grabbed a 1022 and a, and a, and a magazine uh, with 10 rounds in it and I slap it in there. And he comes out with me and he's looking up at his toy and I'm thinking, what's he going to do when I start cracking this thing off? You know, So I crack one off and it starts swinging. He just stands there looking at it. So um, I've never really had him rate adjacent when I'm shooting before and doesn't even phase him, doesn't even care. So I think it was like the third shot I hit it a third time and it just kept, it's like one of these rubber toys and the bullets were just going through it and it was just sealing itself back up and swinging. So then I figured, okay, let me find where the rope is and I shot where the rope and the, the, the limb came together and down came his toy and he was all happy and, uh, you know, we went back, put the gun up and, and went back out and started playing with him. But, uh, I was just a little aside there. But, yeah, we're looking at, you know, probably bringing in a new dog uh, when Blackie departs us. And uh, we would probably go ahead and do it before, except that with traveling and having to board the dogs, it would be a third dog and just another expense when we're gone. And and he just probably doesn't need to deal with a pup in in, in his old age, and he's kind of grumpy and all. So we'll wait until he's uh, he's gone on, and then we'll probably mourn for a, you know an appropriate period of time, and then we'll start uh, find, you know searching for that next dog. Anyway, um, another thing I'm really looking at from the protein side of things is if I put all those ponds in, definitely bring some ducks in. Um, I am really disturbed by a stance that the U.S. Uh, Game Commission, Fish and Wildlife or Migratory Bird, whoever the hell they are, has taken on Muscovy ducks. Uh, that was my plan was to bring Muscovy ducks in uh, at some point. And I think they've been made illegal, but that final ruling hasn't passed yet. But it looks like the ability to own Muscovy ducks uh, by private citizens is being phased out because they're being legislated as a federal migratory game bird because native populations have now moved into this little tiny area of South Texas. So that means since they migrate from one nation into our nation, now they're a game bird under a migratory game law, uh, even though thousands of other species of birds do the same thing and nobody really hunts muscovies, they just decided they want to do this because they don't like the fact that they get away and they get into the wild populations. At least that's supposedly the problem. Now, I'm going to tell you, I remember these things floating around on ponds everywhere uh, growing up as a kid, and they never seemed to cause any problems to me. I just think this is another example of government getting in the way. But some sort of ducks, and, and bring them into that system and give them a, a, you know, a little house to go in at night to be protected. And just, you know, whatever they produce, they produce. If they produce 20 ducklings that survive to maturity a year, then that's 20 meals. If it's 10, it's 10. If it's 1, it's 1. Whatever. And I think it'll be more than we can possibly need, honestly. Uh, and we'll probably have to use their eggs to keep some population control. Chickens are a definite. Uh, we're already trying to figure out exactly where the chicken coop's going to go and how we're going to work this. With putting the fencing in, I'm starting to think, okay, now how can I create a paddock system for my chickens? You know, how can I create, once I have this big long line of fencing, how can I just go in there and maybe put a second line in and put in some cross fencing and just create a system where I can easily move the birds to a different paddock every day. Even if I rotate them on five paddocks over five days, it would still be much easier on the land. And I'm also thinking about how I can put some other paddocks in there that are going to be short-term, intensely grazed by the chickens. So they'll come in, they'll hammer it for two weeks. Just hammer it, strip it, manure it, kill the pests, 
And then we'll put them off of that. And then we'll plan into that. And they won't be back in there for another three to four months when they'll get to do it again. And so we're looking at some stuff like that. I'm looking at as much pasture as I can create to feed my rabbits and my chickens and my ducks and probably some geese uh, down the road. And I think putting pastures uh, in between the swales is probably the best way to do that. And I have a huge uh, flat terrace on my back side of my property that I could probably grow uh, cooler clovers back there because it doesn't get that much sun, so it could probably survive back there. And I have my water from my air conditioning unit that drips down underneath the house. We found this summer when we started working on the house that it was basically a pond under the house, and it was air conditioner water. And that's a risk for listeria, and it's just not good. So we ran a pipe, and that water just kind of trickles now Uh, off the back of the terrace and goes down into the forest. What I'm planning to do next year is figuring out a way to harvest that water and basically irrigate the entire backyard with the condensation. I know that seems like a pretty lofty goal, but if you go out there in the summertime, it's a, it's a constant drip. It's a constant steady drip, and if you use it right and you force it through and you do all the other things I'm talking about, you can go a long way with a little bit of water when we add the rainfall that we get and everything else like that. I just need to keep it irrigated enough to keep clover alive. That's it. I don't need it to grow tomatoes or anything. I have other places to do that. So that's another thing that we're looking at doing. Um, I'm really considering pigeons. Pigeons and quail are my two things I keep going back and forth about. My thought with pigeons is I can set them up in a system that's used in the desert for them called coats. And it's just basically, it looks like a great big purple martin house. So if you know what a purple martin house, it kind of looks like one of those, but it's bigger because they're bigger birds. And you set them up so that you can just basically pick them up and move them. So you can set them in an area where you want their manure um, for a garden. So you can actually put a, let's say you put a stand right over one of your garden beds, and you put their their little nesting box there, and they'll go in there, and they'll, they'll use that. And they, this is free range, man. They just come and go as they please. And, you know, you feed them and, and what have you and support them. And, and as they have babies, you let the babies grow up until they're, you know, right size for eating. And you go in there and take them out and you harvest your, your, your meat animals that way and let your breeders just keep doing what they do. Well, the nice thing with this is that all you have to do to make that predator proof is give yourself, put a cone on the, on the pole that keeps a raccoon or, or, or whatever from getting up that pole and getting into your, your, uh, your area. So you have that. Uh, they're easy to build. And you can move them wherever you want them, whenever you want to. So you can have a relatively large flock of birds, and you have almost no maintenance whatsoever. Pigeons will go find food. They'll fly away, and they come back all by themselves. So that would be a great system for me. And to me, it's a better system uh, for everything that I need and to meet my traveling requirements because they don't need to be looked after the way that, let's say, quail in a pen would. So, I, but I, you know, I look at quail and I think of quail eggs and roasted quail and, you know, I kind of want those too. So we're going to phase that in. But I think the first one will be the pigeons. And uh, pigeons, you can, there's tons of ways to get stock pigeons. It's, it's, it's interesting what happens if you take a pigeon and give it a home uh, and, and force it to stay there for a given period of time. So basically you build a tall vertical cage and you feed your pigeons and you put them in an area with these, this, this, this system Uh, this, this housing system, and you put maybe a dozen birds in there, males and females, so that they'll pair up, and they'll go in their little holes, and they'll just basically kind of go, okay, yeah, I'm going to live here now. And once you let them loose, since you started feeding them, providing them water, they'll just home in on that. They'll just show up. Okay, this is my house now. And they'll keep coming back. 
And I'll give you kind of a, a, a cool way to trap pigeons if you want to get pigeons for stock this way. Go to a place where there's pigeons, where this is okay to do, like a, a, a bridge or something that they're living under, and you take and you start feeding them. So go there for three or four days in a row and just keep putting feed down in an area. These are probably wild birds. It's not like a park where they're going to run up to you or whatever. And if you can get permission to take them out of a park, you can catch pigeons with a handful of bread and a dip net, right? But in this situation, you've got birds that are going to be a lot more flighty. And you take those birds and you start feeding them really, really heavy for a few days. And You, know, you notice they're using the feed. And then you put a pigeon trap in. And there's two ways to build a pigeon trap, and both of them are really, really simple. One is you build a great big box, right? But it's just a frame. So you use like one by twos. You build a box frame, let's say, two and a half feet long by two and a half feet wide, something around that size. All around all, all four sides, you put chicken wire. So, you know, your chicken wire, big enough to keep pigeons in, but very, very easy to see through. And on your bottom... It, it, the way we usually did them, you don't even put anything. You just leave it open. That way you can reach under and grab your birds out or reach to the top and grab your birds out. Across the top, you use heavy gauge wire, something about the size of like coat hanger wire, about that size, and you make a grid on the top. A grid with, with squares that are about four inch square. All right? And all you do is set that on top of your feet. And what happens is pigeons land on it. They look down in there and they go, hmm, all the seed on the outside's eaten, but there's stuff in there. So what they do is they fold their wings and they drop through the hole. Once they drop through the hole, can't get out. Because they try to fly out, their wings won't fit back through the hole. So they end up stuck in there. So you show up, and if you have a bottom, you just pick your trap up and put a new one in place. If you don't have a bottom, you stick your hand through and you grab your pigeons and you pull them out. You put them in your transport container and you leave your trap there and come back for more. Cool, huh? So now you got urban survival in addition to stocking your homestead with your own pigeons. Because right, you could do that with any bird, anywhere, that trap will work. The other way you do it is you do chicken wire on all sides, and then you build a door right, uh, on two ends. So you have a door on two ends. And then you just you basically take the same style of wire, and you set it so that basically you have four or five wires going across your door that are hinged one way. And the pigeons will push through. that. They'll just push them out of the way and go in. But when they fall, and you got to make them so they won't slide together. So you kind of like wire them in place, but leave them hang. So you, you bend a little loop to create your hinge action. And they come and they hit the bottom of the door so they won't go out. They'll only go in. And the pigeons will push their way through and go inside there. That's another way to build one of your own. Um, but I have found they're far more effective and far, far higher catch rates with the top grid model. Because the birds are more likely to go in. It's the bold birds and the dumb birds that push their way through the little hinge door. But the top grid system, the, the, the pigeon brain just doesn't understand. I'm going to have to be able to get back out of here. So that's how I would probably acquire my pigeons from wild stock, as long as I could find a place around here with wild pigeons. And that would require more of a coop system, right? Because you have to hold them. For about a week, if you feed and hold them for about a week, they'll home in on that spot. So I would have to build kind of, let's say, a temporary coop system around these coats. And what I imagine would happen is if I didn't kill off all my young squab and I let some of them come up to breeding age and I give them more coats, those new birds will just go take up residence. So you could start with, let's say, a dozen birds, six pairs, 
and go from there. And if you don't harvest right away, you can build up your own breeding stock. And again, you just move these systems around, and they'll home in on that's that's mine. That's the one I want to be in. And uh, just because you move it doesn't mean they won't go there anymore. So now I can move their manure, and I can have them look after themselves. So that's why I'm really keying in on this pigeon thing. Now here's what I realize. It's all theory, right? Uh, we used to raise pigeons. My great uncle taught me a lot about it in a coop system. And I know if I build a pigeon coop, I can do this and I can do this easy and it'll work and I, and I can basically just have a pigeon coop. And I know I can do that. This whole coats system is something I picked up again from Jeff Lawton and this is how they raise them in the desert where you wouldn't spend the resources to build a pigeon coop and you just need them. And pigeons, by the way, are a desert bird. Uh, they're like a, a desert dove, basically. So this idea might not pan out. And here's the thing. I'm willing to share my failures with you guys. So I know some of the stuff I talked about today sounds crazy, and some of it will work and some of it won't work. Uh, but I'll share both the successes and failures with you today. Anyway, I hope today's been interesting and engaging and fun. I know I was kind of all over the place, and I, I know that I only taught you a couple things, and most of the stuff was just, hey, here's what I'm going to do. But I want this to be a fun week for you. And I hope that me sharing what I'm excited about and this side of survivalism with you helps make this a fun week. You know, I just gave somebody an interview, a lady that's working on her master's thesis, and she's going to do it on preparedness in America and present it from a standpoint of it's a normal thing for Americans to do. And she was like, well, how much of this is fear-based in reality? And I said, you know, a lot of people come to it with fear. But when I get to talk to them through a couple episodes, I'm hoping the fear dissipates and becomes uh, being emboldened and being excited for the future. There are some things in our economic future that are going to suck. They are going to suck so bad. Most of you guys that know they're going to suck don't realize how bad they're going to suck. But we're not going anywhere. We're not all going to disintegrate. We're not going to turn into zombies or we're not, you know, whatever, whatever Mad Max fantasy, uh, leads you to start looking into survivalism, whatever it is, is not likely to happen. Yeah, a comet could hit our planet. You know what? If I heard that Comet Spirco 5, right, was about to hit planet Earth, and it was a dinosaur killer sites comet, it was going to end all life on Earth. There was going to be nothing left. I would go get my wife and my kids and a couple of our favorite adult beverages, and I would sit under a tree, and I would watch the sunset for the last time, and I would be at peace with my place in the universe and go, this is just destiny. And all of the people that would be riding in streets and whatever could go to hell. Because it ain't going to matter when it's over. And I would spend my last moments with the people that I love. All of us are going to have our comments someday. All of us. Some of us are going to know what's coming. And some of us are going to get hit like a truck. And we're not going to know. But for when we know, when it's a diagnosis or a prognosis, and we know, hopefully that's how we'll all spend it. And survivalism, you have to have some of that fatalism in you and realize that it can happen for anybody on any given day. But that doesn't mean that we don't build. I, these people out there that are in the audience, I don't get you people that say, well, I'm not going to buy a house because the government might take it away with imminent domain. I bought my house, and I, I got as far out of their way as I can. And I'm doing all this exciting stuff. And if somebody wants to take it, they're going to have to get through me to get it away from me. I'll fight to keep it. I'll fight to my last breath to keep what I have. And that's the attitude we need to have. Not, oh God, what if, what if, what if, you know? I'll say this again for you folks. You might want to put your hands over your kids' ears if your kids are listening to this one and decide whether you want them to hear it or not. I had a shop teacher back in high school, 
And we were talking about, I think, 308 and 3006 and having that old debate when I was a kid and thought the extra little bit of velocity really mattered in the 06. And he, I was, well, what if this and what if that? What if this? And he pulls me aside away from all the other kids says, I'm going to tell you something. I know you're not going to get all upset about it or anything, and it's the only one we able to make my point. He was just like a cool shop teacher. And I said, Mr. Fox, what, what are you going to tell me? He goes, Spirico, if your aunt had balls, she'd be your uncle. And that was, get off the what ifs. Stick to reality. And I think that there's a, there's a heavy case for that in, in the survival world today. To get off the, well, what if this and what if that? You know, whatever. That's why we have redundancy. That's why we have extra food stored. That's, so the fact that we've done all of these things in our lives to be more stable, we get rid of our debt. We have extra food. We have backup power systems. We have a plan for what we're going to do if we have to leave. Then we should live our lives with this, this, feeling of power and authority. That's who we are. We're not cowards. We're not hiding. We're not paranoid. We're not what the media wants to paint us as, are we? No, we're excited people. And I was talking to this young lady and I was explaining to her, you know, why why I'm so in, in, enamored with, with permaculture. And I said, this is what permaculture is. It's a system of directives and ethics that provides you a troubleshooting and design system to ensure that we can, as a, as a people, be sustainable and survive into the future. And that the prime directive of permaculture is the only ethical choice is to take responsibility for ourselves and for the futures of our children. That's survivalism! Duh! But why are we doing this if we're not taking responsibility for ourselves and for our children and their futures? That's what the whole shooting match is. That's what it's all about. And that's why I want you happy and excited and, and looking forward to a future, even when we know there's going to be some really bad storms in our lives, financial and otherwise. But we can get through it all. And we don't have to do it through paranoia. We do it through a, a hierarchy system. We learn to look after ourselves. And once we can look after ourselves, we look after our families. And once we look after our families, then we can reach out and look after our neighborhoods and our, our smaller communities. That's how you change the world. Guess who taught me that? Jeff Lawton on Paul Newton's podcast. That's survivalism. So... Permaculture survival is me, one and the same. And if you don't have a big piece of land to do this with, and you're thinking, man, all this stuff Jack's saying sounds crazy, I uh, can't fit that in, pick up that Urban Permaculture DVD. You want to talk about a plan for urban survival? It's in that DVD. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
their children just can't pay. Nobody up there cares. They're living for today. Yeah.